Well, thank you, everyone, so much for coming. It is Sunday, December the 3rd, 2006, 4.09 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, Greenwich Mean Time, minus 8, minus 5, minus 5, I think. So uh, thanks, everyone, for joining. I really appreciate it. Uh, the way that will work is um, uh, I'll do a short introductory speech, and I would say short even by my standards. So uh, I appreciate your attention for that, and then we'll open it up to questions. Uh, we're going to refrain from discussing the topic of prostitution because I certainly need a break. And uh, so uh, there's still a debate, I think, going on on the board about certain aspects of that, which you are more than willing oh, – sorry, more than welcome to, uh, to join. So this is Stefan Molyneux from Free Domain Radio, www.freedomainradio.com. Thank you so much for dropping by and spending a chunk of your Sunday afternoon slash evening with us. I really appreciate it. I think it's wonderful that everyone's by. And I'm going to start with uh, an interesting article that I'll just read a short couple of excerpts from. Uh, this is an article from Maclean's uh, as of December the 11th, 2006. Maclean's is like Time Light. It's like the Time magazine for Canada. And uh, here it says, the gravy train is still out of control. Reforms to how Ottawa, which is where our national government is, reforms to how Ottawa procures are still, are being stalled or even ignored. And I'll just read a little bit from this article because I think there's quite a number of interesting uh, package generalizations thrown in here. Uh, so it starts off, in her annual report this week into government misspending and ethics breaches, Auditor General Sheila Fraser uncovered a whopper, a former correctional investigator who may have collected $325,000 in unearned salary and improper payments. But more importantly, Fraser's report also touched on a systemic, not to mention costly problem, the awarding of government contracts. Fraser found that two contracts awarded in 2004 for $150 million to relocate members of the RCMP and Canadian forces had, quote, serious shortcomings, and that the winning bidder, Royal LePage Relocation Services, benefited over competitors through prior connections with the government. It was yet another black eye for the already bruised Public Works Department, the government's spending arm. When the Conservatives came to power last January, they vowed to do away with the kind of free-flowing, non-competitive contracts first uncovered by Fraser in her scathing review of the sponsorship scandal in 2004. Uh, this was uh, just a huge, uh, you know, multi-hundred millions of dollars uh, mess where people were just sort of bribed and so on. But efforts over the past year to reform how public works buys goods and services have been stalled, frustrated, or altogether ignored. The era of the large, untendered contract appears to be alive and well in post-ad scam Ottawa. So here it says, according to a review of McLean's of contracts over one 12-month period, the government awarded 4,700 non-competitive contracts, that's contracts that don't go out for ten, ten, uh, tender or bids, worth $1.9 billion, and those are only the largest ones worth over $25,000 each. The contracts, which include a sampling from before and after last January's federal election, range from the predictable to the obscure, awarding for everything from the purchase of missiles and bolts to opinion polls and underwear. Avis Rent-A-Car, for instance, holds a three-year, $5 million non-competitive contract to supply the military with cars at its secret base in Dubai. All in all, 10% of the money spent on procurements by Ottawa in a typical year is handed out on a non-competitive basis, as if the rest of it's not um, entirely skewed as well. Now, the reason that I think this is interesting, and, and it, it gives, I think, quite a, um, an instructive view into the mindset of most of the people, at least uh, in the media, because you do read this stuff quite a bit, most of the people in the media who uh, talk about uh, government contracting and uh, federal spending and, or, or state spending and say that the system is flawed because it, um, 
uh, it uh, awards on a non-competitive basis, it awards uh, contracts. And the implicit premise in that, of course, is that the uh, spending of the government exists to serve the needs of the community, and therefore, when it doesn't do so, it is flawed, which is something that I would say is a premise that is itself flawed. The one thing that I think is absolutely hilarious about this, and, and I think the most telling, the most telling thing, there is uh, a contract that was uh, put in place which was supposed to... Um, uh, a, a company, in 2005, a consulting company called A.T. Kearney Limited was contracted to recommend ways to reform the procurement process. Um, but in September, Public Works Minister Michael Fortier was forced to drop the company's main recommendations following a backlash from suppliers. Many argued the recommendations would see contracts awarded based on the cheapest bids rather than the ones providing the best value. To add to the conservatives' headaches, the ATU Kearney contract was horribly over budget. The $1.7 million contract, which is supposed to help control government spending, ended up costing $20, $24 million. It wasn't the first misstep. In April, the Tories were forced to cancel an untendered contract aimed at reforming the procurement process when it was discovered it was awarded to a consultant who'd worked on the Prime Minister's transition team. <laughs> so here's sort of two examples when the government tries to reform itself, number one. The um, uh, uh, Yes, I am a businessman to the person who's just asked. Um, the government not only uh, awards the contracts on how to make the awarding of government contracts uh, less uh, preferential, less uh, nepotistic to somebody who has helped in the transition of the newest government team, and also uh, it is, uh, what is that, a uh, 1,000% over budget from $1.7 million to $24 million dollars. Yeah, it's, it's about 1,400% over budget uh, before it's shut down, like Lord knows where it was going from there. So this, to me, underlines a very important thing that, uh, that is, is going on in the government that it's sort of very important to, to understand, I think, that the government uh, does not exist to provide services but exists to transfer money to friends, right? The government exists to transfer money from taxpayers to those with power. And so constantly crying out, that the government needs to reform itself in order to better perform its services is quite funny when you think about it, because, of course, it seems to me that it is perfectly well performing its services, <laughs> and it's perfectly well fulfilling its intended, uh, its intended uh, purpose. So, for instance, if you have a, um, uh, a surgeon who says, uh, I want to save patients, but every time he gets a patient on his slab, he accidentally, quote, accidentally beheads the patient. Then uh, after this happens about, uh, you know, say 500 to 1,000 times, you may have some question about the intentions of the surgeon. And if you look at the statistics going back over uh, government contracts, I certainly know that the ones going back to the early 20th century, so a little over 100 years, there has been a perfectly consistent overbilling of government contracts and government quotes. There has never been any reform in the system that has achieved anything. They are many multiples of times more expensive and have been ever since they've started to be tracked in North America, at least in the 20th century. So when the surgeon keeps beheading the patients at some point, it seems to me quite funny and really quite sad for people to say, well, the government really isn't fulfilling its intended construct uh, and it need, or intended purpose, and it needs to be cleaned up, you see, and, uh, and, and not noticing anything about the history of it, uh, that uh, this is it's really its, its intended purpose. And the idea of cleaning it up is sort of ridiculous, right? It's sort of like saying the mafia is not as customer-centric as it should be. 
and therefore the mafia should, uh, should try to reform itself. And what we're going to do is we're going to hire a bunch of mafia goons to reform the mafia and then feel that we're doing something. And this kind of non-solution, this kind of silly, uh, babbling idiocy that you see in the media all the time, that uh, the government is basically sound, but it has problems, right? That it's a sound concept, but there are some bad apples in it. And I think, I think that's what's interesting is that the media, of course, is heavily bound up in this kind of stuff with the state because they report on all the stuff the state does and they need their contacts and they need this and they need that. I think what's very interesting, what I've sort of been noticing, uh, both in the emails that I've been receiving uh, and uh, just in general conversations that I've been having with people, is that the amount of cynicism that's out there about the government really is at an all-time high. I've been debating this stuff for over 20 years, and I've never seen cynicism towards government at this kind of level. Uh, I have, I can't remember for the life of me, even among people who are statists, even among people who are kind of socialists, I have not for the life of me heard of somebody last suggesting a large government program to solve a problem. Because, of course, well, there are very few government programs, sorry, there are very few problems left in society that haven't had a large government program thrown at them. But I can't remember the last time that a problem came up in society and I heard people say, well, what we need is a large government program. And that, to me, is rather remarkable and quite an enormous change from what used to go on in these kinds of debates. So uh, I just think that's a very important thing to understand. The danger, of course, is that when you uh, fail to believe in the ideals of the society that you live in, because they're obviously so contrary to the reality that actually occurs, when you no longer believe in the ideals of the society that you live in, the great temptation is to fall into a sort of pit of cynicism and nihilism and hostility and skepticism. In other words, everything that I was told was not true, therefore nothing is true. And that is certainly something which you can see going on in England among the young at the moment, um, but uh, in, in other areas as well, I think. And uh, I, don't know, I won't bring it up with regards to the debate we had this week, but I would say that it's an important thing. This is why I think it's so important to be out there and to be positive and to be pleasant and to, be, uh, enjo to enjoy ideas and to show people not just in the content of your ideas but in the way in which you communicate them, in the happiness and the pleasure that you take in ideas and in the strength that you take in the concept of virtue and honor and dignity and so on, that just because there's an enormous amount of fatuous bullshit in society doesn't mean that nothing is true because that is uh, the reaction uh, sort of the reaction formation to some degree, uh, to use a slightly technical term, that occurs for people when they realize, when their idealism, sort of quote idealism in their society, gets blown away bit by bit, sequence by sequence, that people see that those in power are not honorable, that those who taught them uh, lied to them or at very best obscured things for their own personal petty gains. And the great danger that comes out of that is people throwing up their hands and saying, well, that's it. Nothing is true, everything is nonsense, and uh, losing their ambition, uh, losing their pleasure in thinking, and believing that the substitute that is reasonable for misguided idealism is uh, black cynicism, and that uh, the, the antidote to a wisdom that turns out to have been false is an abandonment of all of the pursuits of wisdom. And I think that it's so important that philosophers like us put out a viable alternative to believing in the nonsense that's out there in society or 
going out and thinking that uh, everything is nonsense, uh, everything is permitted, nothing is true, nothing is real, except that nothing is real and so on. That kind of nihilistic cynicism that's out there, the radical relativism, I think it's just important that to whatever degree we can, we can put out a positive alternative to the cynicism that is really flowing through society, among the young, I think, more so than the old. The older people are still a little bit along like, they kind of roll their eyes and say, yeah, well, you know, we know the government's nonsense, but what can you do? Whereas uh, the disintegration of social norms that is occurring, I think, among the young in particular, is uh, something that uh, I think we need to combat almost as much as, as statism, because uh, it really is a, a rather desperately negative thing to have brought into a debate that nothing is true, right? So if you're earnestly trying to find some sort of wisdom or some sort of peace of mind or some sort of conclusion about ethics and society and politics and life, and uh, somebody comes along with a nihilistic viewpoint that it's all nonsense, it's never going to work, uh, you know, you're just, it's mental masturbation, nothing means anything, and, you know, grab whatever pleasure you can and to hell with everyone else, and all morality is a lie inflicted upon the weak by the strong to keep the weak weak, right? I mean, this is the sort of Nietzschean view of the master and slave morality. It's a very, very hard thing to fight, this kind of nihilism, because it really isn't a fight. It isn't a fight at all. All it is is, is saying that there's no possibility of victory or, or uh, non-victory, and that all thought and all philosophy is a form of manipulation, and that all thought and all philosophy is a form of power grabbing, is a form of, of keeping other people down, and that uh, when the leaders don't obey their own morality, which is very clear, then uh, people say, well, all morality uh, is simply put in place to keep the weak weak. And that's a very hard uh, thing to argue against, and I'm not sure, I can't sort of think from my own life whether or not I've ever been able to successfully convert a nihilist. I don't think I've been able to. I think it's kind of cancerous. I think it's kind of rancid. And uh, I've never really had any luck, so I'd... uh, but it's still, it's still worth engaging with a nihilist uh, if there are other non-nihilists around who might be swayed uh, some, in some other direction. So that's just something that I would, uh, I would sort of suggest uh, as a, a, useful, uh, a useful approach. All right, so that's my brief intro. Good heavens, it was only 14 minutes. That's, that's shockingly brief, um, but I needed a, to take a breath. So... Um, I'm going to uh, um, open the board up, uh, open the show up to any questions or criticisms, comments. Uh, Again, if you could uh, do me a favor and lay off the prostitution thing, uh, I don't particularly want to revisit that at the moment. But uh, if you have sort of any other questions or issues, I would really appreciate that, that um, um, uh, if you would like to uh, uh, click on the uh, request uh, microphone, then um, I would be more than happy to, uh, to open up the mic uh, to you. We do have a gentleman who is requesting the microphone. Let us see if we can't get him uh, in. Are you, are you available? Yeah. Hi, how are you doing? I'm fine, how are you? Very well, very well. Uh, what can I do for you? Just asking, how's the weather? What how's do you do? <laughs> <laughs> the weather here in Canada is uh, pretty grim. Uh, my wife and I went for a fairly lengthy walk this morning. Because the last time we went for a walk, we saw both deer and beaver. So we're going animal hunting now. Uh, and uh, it was, it was oh. a, a little on the chilly side here in Canada, for sure. <laughs> yeah, in Sweden, we have a, a heat record. It's the warmest in Sweden ever since the 50s. Really? Yeah, yeah we have like 8 Celsius. Whoa. <laughs> so it seemed to me that you owe us some heat. That would seem to be the, the reasonable conclusion to that. Huh? 
I think you might owe us some heat. You've stolen yeah, well, heat. Yeah, sure. <laughs> well, I, I don't want heat. I want cold. I want snow. I want it to be a white Christmas right. for once. Are you a skier? Huh? No, I'm not a skier. I'm a, I'm a nerd. Oh. <laughs> well, I hope the two aren't totally exclusive, but I appreciate that. And have you, uh, you haven't called in or listened to the show before, have you? Never. Ah, well, welcome aboard. This is a show about philosophy, particularly anarchistic philosophy. So um, the weather is certainly an interesting topic, and we've had a, could have a couple of interesting chants on global warming, but I don't think anything specific to the weather in Sweden. Okay. Uh, well, <laughs> the weather in Sweden, I don't know. Sweden, Sweden's uh, fall and winter is, um, let's say, it's rainy in Sweden. And, and in summer, it's like some days it's really hot. Some other days it can rain forever. Right. When it's I like grew up flooding. in England, so I'm aware of that for sure. Yeah, okay, England. Is, yeah, that's not so far right. from, so... Now, listen, I've got a couple of other people who want to join, so uh, feel free to come back if you have any questions about what we're chatting about. Thank you so much for, uh, for listening in. Yeah, I'm going to listen now. I appreciate that. Thanks. Ah, I think we have a U-boat commander. All right, sorry about that. Uh, that's somebody who, has, uh, who had their question uh, raised but has the microphone right next to the speakers, so I'm afraid we can't. Um, we can't do that. Uh, Mr. G, did you want to talk? You had a, um, uh, all right, let me just do that. Uh, who am I asking, as if it's not? Uh, oh, I don't see you in our, can you see him? I can't, I don't have, um, there he is. Ah, do, 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 do. Uh, ah, there we go, there we go. All right. Um, yes, my friend. All right. Uh, there you go. How's hello? it going? Hey, not bad. Yourself? I'm very well, thanks. Uh, just two questions on your uh, little dissertation there. Um, you know, uh, whenever you use the word little, that's not usually a good sign. <laughs> Sorry about that. <laughs> no problem. <laughs> um, is uh, this this trend a away from reliance on... Uh, government as a uh, tool for correcting social ills, uh, uh, do you see that as uh, um, linear or uh, cyclical? By, by linear, I mean, uh, do you think that this is some sort of uh, a continuous uh, linear trend from more statism to less statism in the minds of, of uh Population in general, or do you see it more as a um, as a cyclical trend where um, people are just kind of um, swinging between um, uh, faith in government uh, on one end and cynicism in government on the other? Well, I can uh, I can sort of tell you what I think, and then you can tell me if it makes any sense to you. Um, my sort of experience and, and thoughts about this is sort of like this, that it's kind of like dieting. So people who have uh, problems with their weight, uh, every now and then, you know, usually after Christmas, they'll go and buy, uh, you know, a, an elliptical machine or go to the gym and they'll work off some pounds that they might have gained. What is it? The average person gains like seven pounds over Christmas or something like that. 
um, which is fine if you're in England and it's currency, but it's not so good in North America. But um, uh, I think that people uh, will go on diets, and then when they have achieved their goals, they will then stop uh, dieting, and they will then start to resume their original eating habits, right? So there is the cyclical thing with a lot of people when it comes to dieting that there's a specific thing that they want to get, right? So they put on 10 pounds or they put on 20 pounds and then they say, gee, that's no good. I better lose that 10 or 20 pounds. And then they work to do that. And as we all know, right, diets don't fundamentally work, right? I mean, it's one of the big sort of problems with dieting. It doesn't doesn't work at all. In fact, uh, it's generally better to be 10 or 20 pounds overweight than it is to keep gaining and losing 10 or 20 pounds. So um, I think that uh, for, for a lot of people, it's sort of analogous that government's too big and they support the restriction of government, but only because certain problems have crept up, right? So uh, if inflation is too high, then they'll say, well, the Fed should have less power or should have less ability to print money. And so they'll say this, and when uh, when the deficit gets too large and is eating up too much, uh, too many interest payments in terms of consumption of the tax dollars up here in Canada, it was like 48 cents on the dollar was going to interest payments. And then people say, well, obviously we have to cut spending or we have to whatever, right, raise taxes. So I think that people look at government and the situations that governments create, and they look for specific solutions that's like, oh, well, we've put on some weight, let's lose some weight. I think that's one kind of thing that occurs, and that's not a very um, rational or philosophical approach to the problems of statism. On the other hand, though, uh, I think when people get diabetes, they change their diet. Like when people get diabetes or they they end up with some uh, sort of health-related uh, issue like, I don't know, a very fatty liver or something like that, when they end up, when their eating has caused them to it, have some significant negative health benefits, then then people are more open to doing more than just tweaking their diet, but actually changing their lifestyle, right? So um, my wife, when she got lactose intolerance, um, once she figured out what was going on, it totally changed her lifestyle uh, as far as eating went, right? So uh, whereas before, you know, it was, oh, you know, maybe I'm eating too many, you know, milk products or whatever, and you know, but uh, I think when people kind of hit the wall in a way and things become a lot, then they're open to more uh, structured approaches, right? So uh, I, I would say it, it is both, it is both, uh, and I think that we have yet to hit the kind of problems that are going to send people scurrying to uh, more comprehensive solutions to the problems of state power. Right now, people think that it's a beast that can be written, Right. Uh, and and so I think people are looking for incremental approaches to the problems of state power. But when people uh, really get that there are significant problems, when we sort of economically contract diabetes or something, then I think people are going to be more open to uh, to this kind of uh, solution that's much more structural and much less of a sort of tweak. Does that analogy make any sense? Uh, yeah, actually, it does. Um, did you hear the so surprise you, in you his don't... voice there? I did. I heard. Yeah. You know. <laughs> It does. I'm going to write this one down because this is what is the date today? Let's. This is the date that steps. Anyway, go on. I'm taking notes right now. <laughs> I would. It may not come again. So, so you don't see uh, you don't see right now really as a, a moment in time when um, uh, when something like um, oh, say the your argument for morality can really have any effect? Well, it has effect at the moment uh, in that it gets me donations. No, it has effect at the moment <laughs> uh, insofar as it is a tool that people are willing to debate. Now, it doesn't really strike people to the core yet, right, which is why, you know, I keep pestering people about family and so on, right? It doesn't, 
strike people to the core just yet, but you, by the time it, it becomes absolutely essential, right, then, then it's too late if you don't have the ideas out there, right? So if, to, like if there was no such thing as the science of nutrition and very little warning uh, or very little um, uh, science about how to change your diet uh, to deal with uh, problems caused by diabetes, and tomorrow you went to the doctor and, and the doctor said, you have this thing, we'll call it diabetes, uh, that would not be the time to start studying about what diet you should try and change to if you get diabetes, right? So you want to have the knowledge ahead of time disseminated as widely as possible so that when people do get the diagnosis of diabetes, that they have some nutritional advice to turn to, if that makes sense. Um, okay, then... then um Oh, where was I going with this? Oh, uh, let me just put one other thing in there, just in case you were about to regain your train of thought, um, which was, uh, if you notice, the Austrian school gained a great deal of credibility by, I mean, for like 40 years, it lay in abeyance after the rise of the Keynesian uh, philosophy, for want of a better word, uh, until uh, the stagflation of the 1970s, which only the Austrian school predicted, right? So if you do have uh, some uh, viable knowledge, it has to be out there prior and it has to be maintained prior to the circumstances proving it correct, right? So I think there's lots of uh, times in history when you can look at an intellectual movement that stayed in abeyance, and certainly classical liberalism has been out of favor for over a century. Um, when, a, a, uh, when a theory stays in abeyance, it's because the circumstances haven't proven that theory correct, and people don't like to change, particularly their theory of government uh, and their theory of social organization, because, you know, as we can see from the French Revolution and the Russian Revolution and many other revolutions throughout history, if it goes wrong, it goes, like, horribly wrong, right? So uh, if people don't really want to, uh, want to change their... Um, uh, their social system, uh, you know, if there's any other conceivable way to do it, right, in the same way that somebody who's addicted to uh, a particular highly addictive drug doesn't want to change their behavior and almost always has to hit bottom before they will. So this this story then from McLean's is an example of how um, most folks still don't realize they have diabetes. Right, right. So they're, um, um, uh, they are, well... I don't see. I don't know because I don't know if this is this is a whole problem with the media, which I don't have any clear answer for. But um, in business, it's called like a push market or a pull market, right? So uh, a push market is uh, nobody knows what the hell you're selling, and so you have to keep going out and educating people and so on. And then once people finally get educated, they go, "Oh, I get it. I know what you're selling. This is sort of my job at the moment, right? I know what you're selling. That is useful. I just didn't even know it was a problem before, right?" And so that's called right. a push market. And I don't know if the media – oh, sorry, a pull market is like Bill Gates doesn't have to phone you up and say, hey, you want to buy a copy of Windows, right? I mean, it just comes on your computer and, and gets cursed by uh, Linux people. So, um, <laughs> uh, so I don't know with the media, is it because it's a pull market that this is the kind of stuff that people want to read and that the media is just catering to them? Or is it a push market in that this is what the media says – for a variety of reasons we've talked about on the show before, and people will just kind of go, yeah, well, maybe, maybe not. Like, I, don't, I really don't know whether it's a push or pull market, and I don't know that there's any particularly good way to tell. Uh, so, um, so I don't know but, if this is what people it, believe or just what people in the media believe. Sorry, go ahead. But, but in either case, whether it's a push or a pull story, um, the, the implications are not that we should get rid of government, but right. simply that it needs to be... Right, right. Well, I certainly would never expect uh, a mainstream uh, media 
to uh, any mainstream media to talk about getting rid of government. Uh, that, that would just be absolutely unthinkable. That would be... Um, uh, I mean, you might as well expect them to, to ask for the reintroduction of slavery or the, the, uh, you know, the, uh, a beneficial article towards you know, sort of, uh, theft or you know, other than the state kind. Uh, it, is, um, uh, it is something that would just be far too shocking uh, for people uh, to, to, uh, to receive. It is not something that the mainstream media is going to put forward as a viable alternative. Uh, it's just kind of like a business, right? Like some people, the great thing about this article is it gets both the, the small government people and the big government people, right? Because the small government people are like, wow, that's really bad. You know, this, this gravy train is really bad. We should take away power from the government to, to do all this spending. And so they're happy. And then the big government people are like, yeah, that's bad. We should reform that and make it get better, you know? <laughs> so they really do sort of try and play both sides of the fence. But, you know, less slavery or more slavery isn't the same as yes or no to slavery, and I think that's where the debate has yet to arise. I guess there's a timeout, Greg. Uh, if you don't regain your train of thought uh, that quickly. Ah, he's coming back. Okay, uh, sorry. So um, while Greg uh, withdrew in disgust because I wasn't letting him get his question in, uh, we have uh, other... Uh, uh, we have now a moment if anybody wants to. No, they're not gone there. They're coming back, I'm sure. They're coming back. Did I say something that offended people, do you think? Was it me? We shall see. He back. He's back. All right. And do you want to try again? Mr. G? Yeah, hello. Okay, go ahead. <laughs> so you felt that okay, disconnecting so. was the only way to stop the endless stream of words and actually get your own thoughts in order, right? Sorry about that. No I don't know why it dropped up. Um, and now, I, yeah, I can't remember what I was saying. So, the push or pull market was it anything to do with uh, with that? As far as the oh yeah, goes? yeah, the 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 push or, whether push or pull, it, either way, it's still indicative of the fact that that we're not um, that that nobody gets it. That the problem isn't. You know that uh, the tree needs to be pruned. The problem is that the tree needs to be uprooted. Yes, no, that's entirely right. That's entirely right. Um, and and uh, I, you know, I certainly don't know <laughs> how to change that other than through volume to the people, like through the volume of podcasts and and board postings to the people who are on the fence. Right? There's uh, if if you and the funny thing is uh, for me at least uh, the the great challenge with communicating the idea of a stateless society in a way that was convincing to people or has been, I guess, relatively convincing to some people is that I had to spend 20 years getting comfortable with the idea myself, right? So the funny thing is, is that most people won't judge the logical content of an idea. They're certainly not up front, right? Uh, what they will do is they will judge the emotional content of the speaker or of the person who's presenting the idea. And right. what I found to be very helpful was I put forward the idea of a stateless society, and I've received, I can't tell you how many emails from people who say, like, I can't believe that you're pleasant and friendly, <laughs> you know, about this kind of stuff. <laughs> and so, uh, because it doesn't freak me out, it, it's, it's less likely to freak other people out, if that sort of makes, makes any sense. Right, but, but even so, you have to be, I guess, ready for it in a, in, to a certain extent. I mean, um, for myself, uh, you know, 
it was a combination of both my willingness to hear the argument and uh, your willingness to present it in a, in a logical fashion combined that, that made it so convincing, right? So how do, right. So, right. so how do you get that, you know, on a grand scale? Yeah, I mean, it, 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 are we stuck in a situation where the the only the only possible way to do that is to wait for a complete collapse uh, of the economy or the government or what have you before we even have a chance at at uh, um, making the case? And then, in an environment like that where things are so chaotic, uh, could you even hope to? Right. Um, well, sorry, let me just dig myself out of the black hole of depression. I just tripped in there for a moment, but I'm, I'm back. I'm fine. Um, Greg's often the geyser of goodwill and joy. Um, but no, listen, I mean, you're, you're absolutely right. It is a, uh, let's just say it is at best a touch and go proposition. No question. I mean, there's no question whatsoever, right? I mean, in a sense, it's like you're in the plane and the plane's going into the side of the mountain and the mountain is snowy and do you jump or do you not jump, right? So, for sure, if you don't do anything, you're going to die. And I hate to sort of, maybe this is overdramatic, right? But uh, certainly when the government goes wrong, it goes very wrong in, in history and across the world. We can see that. So uh, my sort of particular position is that if we don't do anything, then for sure, uh, you know, the, the uh, uh, freedom won't, won't do well, right? <laughs> There's no question of that. In the absence of action, uh, state power grows uh, entropy against uh, personal liberty, civil rights, property rights, and so on. All of that tends to decay over over time. So without strenuous effort, you know, it's uh, you, you don't get healthy by sitting on the couch, right? So without strenuous effort, for sure, entropy as far as human freedom is inevitable. But uh, and the best that you can do is to uh, to act, you know, vigorously and proactively. For sure. You know, there is a crunch coming, you know, and that's not just my opinion. And it's, you know, this and it's fundamentally the crunch is demographic. It's not even state based, although I believe that the demographics result from state policies. Right. So um, this this my big fat Greek wedding, if you ever saw that movie, a complete fantasy. The uh, reproduction rate uh, in Greece is like one point two children per couple. I mean, it's, it's ridiculous. Right. They there is uh, and, and throughout the Mediterranean, uh, throughout Western Europe. Uh, the reproduction rate for um, the uh, the sort of Western societies, the sort of the ones who were there, not just necessarily the immigrants or other cultures who've come on board, uh, the reproduction rate is ridiculously low. Uh, same thing is true here in Canada. That's partly for a lot of reasons, right? People get married a lot later and so on. And, and so, you know, the chances of having big families or sometimes any family is lower. And so there's this demographic issue wherein we have an enormous bulge of population that's going to retire and there's not an equivalent bulge of population that's going to be available to uh, take care of them. And uh, that is going to cause an enormous crunch uh, when it comes to, um, and if you compare that, say, with the reproduction rate of the Muslim world, which is like lunatically high, then, uh, you know, there's definitely going to be a fiscal crunch coming. And the one thing that is new, though, that has never been around before, which is something that I, of course, have a great deal of interest in, is that there has never been the capacity for people with unusual ideas or non-mainstream ideas uh, to get together and to uh, sort of spread the word in ways that are convenient to people, right? So, I mean, there were libertarian journals starting from the 60s and so on, but uh, podcasting and uh, videos, but podcasting in particular is just an enormously new and different phenomenon. And since um, the progress of the species is all about the dissemination of ideas, there has never been a forum that has existed before 
you know, like I got to the po- a guy posted sort of recently on the board. I won't go into his personal story, but he was saying, I work nights at a gas station, and I can listen to six podcasts a night. And I think he meant mine, and I apologize for that to begin with. But um, how could that have been? He wouldn't have been able to read stacks of libertarian journals, and it would have been not that interesting to do it. And it's not because their ideas aren't good. They're fantastic, but <clears throat> there's something about... You know, the way people have radios on in the background, the way that people listen to Walkmans, the way that they can listen to them in their cars. There's just never been a medium for disseminating the information in this way before. And I'd like to think, I certainly do believe, that if a difference is possible, it's going to come through that. Uh, this is the one new factor that has never been around before. And we know, all the way from the invention of the Gutenberg Press, that um, the technology for communication has an enormous effect on society. So. Okay, so so then uh, maybe maybe what we represent is the um, uh, and, and other groups like this uh, we're the we're the um, we're the force that keeps the pendulum swinging in one direction while the, the, the apologists for statism are the force that keep the pendulum swinging in the other direction. I think that's very true, and I think that because uh, our position is far more consistent both with reality, with uh, evidence, and most fundamentally with the way that people live their own lives, even the status and so on, because our position is so fundamentally, has such a fundamental degree of integrity with how people live their lives, um, that's why I really focus on a couple of things, right? Like I'm trying to accelerate people uh, into accepting the philosophy uh, of, you know, that we talk about the sort of scientific approach to philosophical examination. I really try and focus that um, uh, on people so that they'll try and get it to accept it as quickly as possible, not because I want to bully anyone, but just because I don't think that there's, you know, we don't have generations to get this thing done. And that's also why I focus on the personal relationships, because it's very hard to uh, be convincing in a philosophy that you're putting forward if you are not living that philosophy consistently yourself, right? Because then everything you put forward is kind of like a question, right? And you kind of know you're split within yourself, right? That's why I sort of say to people as well, if you're going to go down the road of philosophy, have some idea what you're getting into, right? <laughs> because it's going to make you miserable if you don't leave it consistently. So don't even start if you're not going to go the whole, the whole way with it. And right. I really do want people to be convincing and to get the happiness that a rational philosophy can bring to people's lives. Uh, that does mean, of course, that if you believe... In, in good and evil and that the non-aggression, the, uh, the non-aggression principle is a definition of a good and the, the advocation of violence against another human being, while not necessarily evil, is certainly not a good thing to do. Uh, that's, why, uh, that's why I really want people to take ideas seriously. And if you're talking to a statist who says, yes, I support that if you don't pay your taxes, you get thrown in jail, to get people to understand that to make it real for that person, this is not an abstract thing they're talking about. They're talking about you know, powder burns and, and cops wrestling you to the ground and, and rape in prison. And, like, they're talking about really fundamentally ugly, vicious, powerful, horrible things, and not to take it lightly. And in order to do that, we have to stop taking it lightly. That means that we have to introduce this use of violence into our conversations with those around us, not in a hostile way, but just in a way that says, hey, uh, you kind of are talking about me getting shot here, right? Or to the Christian, you know, well, you do believe in a book that says I should be put to death. And it's not our fault that people believe this stuff, but if we can't point it out with those who are close to us, 
then uh, it really doesn't mean that much. It's just an intellectual exercise, right? Right. And there are times, sorry, the last thing is there were times for certain people and for everyone in the pursuit of philosophy, there are times for certain people when you hit a core issue that is very hard for you, right? And we saw this on the board last week. There are certain issues which um, are just going to be core for certain people and are going to be very hard to stomach for certain people. The prostitution issue is one, and there will be always, and this has occurred for me as well in the, uh, in the pursuit of philosophy, there's stuff that comes easily and then there's stuff that just comes very hard. And that's the stuff which we have to work through because then we can be convincing when we talk to others and not to mention just sort of being happier ourselves after the initial discombobulation. So, so maybe this... Uh this personal, this personal aspect of philosophy then is really the, uh, the, the the key to keeping the pendulum from swinging back in the other direction. But because of how... Oh, can you hear? I think I lost him. Unfortunately, the FBI crows are probably chewing through his wire as we speak, though I think he had the actual answer. Let me just read uh, what he wrote here. Perhaps the personal aspect is the mechanism that keeps the pendulum from swinging back, but that aspect is exactly what sends people screaming in the other direction, so we're stuck in a kind of conundrum. Well, I don't, and I'm sorry, I'll, I'll, uh, when you get back, we'll uh, sort that out, but I don't believe that we're stuck in a conundrum at all, because the purpose of philosophy is not primarily to convince other people. I think that having integrity within your own self is, is going to make it more likely that you're going to convince other people. But the purpose of philosophy, of course, is, is the pursuit of wisdom and the, the acceptance of truth and having an objective standard for determining true from false propositions and so on. But uh, I don't think it's a conundrum. You know, we can't control other people. That's a fundamental aspect of, of my opposition to the state, right? You can't control other people. And we can't make people free. I mean, that would be a conundrum. That would be a real contradiction. We're trying to force somebody to be free. We can't make people free, but we ourselves can at least be free from people who themselves are not free. And I think that's the fundamental part that I try to talk about in taking a personal approach to philosophy. Politics isn't about the state. It isn't about some distant entity that rules the land in a benevolent and, uh, you know, or not so benevolent fashion that's very abstracted. The state is, you know, is a hot gun and a taxpayer. Uh, the state is police kicking in the door. The state is throwing people in jail to get raped. The state is brutal. And it's hidden by the fact that we have lots of propaganda about it, and it's also hidden by the fact that there's a lot of compliance, right? So uh, if a guy comes up to you and says, I'll shoot you if you don't hand me over your wallet, and then you hand over your wallet, no violence has occurred, except that it has, right? So, uh, so I would say that um, uh, bringing this... Uh, the reality of the violence that is inherent within the nature of a state-based relationship, bringing it to, to the reality of people's lives, uh, is the only way that we can turn people away from violence. If we shield or hide violence from them or pretend that it isn't happening, uh, then people are going to be much more accepting of it because it's not real for them in a way. But when people really do get that the violence is occurring, then they're going to be, that's going to put the, the burden of proof on the people who are defending the use of violence, and that's, the think, the biggest weapon that we have, right? The most powerful thing in the world is the truth. And uh, the truth is, of course, that a vast amount of what goes on in society is violence of one form or another uh, through some sort of state-based or through a corporate use of the, the guns of the government to achieve their ends. Uh, that's an enormous amount of what goes on in society, and if we don't talk about it frankly and openly, and if we don't condemn it frankly and openly, and if... We continue to associate with people who suggest that the solution to social problems is violence, then it really doesn't mean anything in particular. So.
Is he back? Can you hear me? I can hear you. <laughs> Sorry about that. My router's no problem. freaking out. Um, so, yeah, I was just on my last my last point. Um, really, that's all I had to say was that uh, the, the one thing that, uh, that that really is the the the, the clincher that uh, keeps the pendulum from swinging in the other direction is the one thing that uh, uh, is the one thing that people run from the most. Right. 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 So that was basically it. All right. Well, thank you. Was there any other questions that you had that uh, came out of uh, uh, this week? or? Uh, well, I mean, I've got like three or four other topics. But that's... Let me just uh, pause. Uh, pause. Have a look over those. I'll just throw it out to anybody else if you want to um, to uh, to uh, ask a question, make a comment, uh, criticize or something like that. more than happy to hear. If you would like to raise uh, your hand, you can click on the request microphone and I will mail one to you. And then I will see that here, and we'll uh, give you the mic. If not, we will continue with our good friend, Mr. G. So I'll just give people a second to respond to that. Um, uh, maybe what? Wake up, everybody. <laughs> Don't be to startle you. Pull your head up from the keyboard. They're going to end up with quirtyitis, right? It's that keyboard face that you get when you face plant on the keyboard. All right. Uh, Greg will come back. Mr. K, go ahead. Hello? Hello. Hello. Um, I just have a. Uh, first of all, I thank you for taking me in. Although I wrote to you earlier, um, and you talked about the holy aspect of of, of people ha being able to believe in something, and and use that as as a way to to connect them in somehow. Um, what I. Uh, came to think about was that um, and, and people that were really believers in it were would, would do it uh, like it should be done, but I was thinking about priests, that they believe in God, they believe in Christianity, but they not necessarily, they don't necessarily hold themselves under the Ten Commandments or whatever the religion might uh, dictate them to do. Um, but Still, we believe in those, and, 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 and people still go to churches, even though we, we know that there are some people that, that are representatives of, of God that don't necessarily keep their dignity to the religion itself. Yeah, well, that's certainly true. Did you have a question about that, or is that a comment that you wanted to make? That was the first comment about that. Um, sorry, I'm not trying to undermine what anything you said, um, even though it, it, it sounds like it. Um, the other thing is that the, the thing about the pendulum, that the world is, uh, that, that we're afraid of, of it being repeated, and that when we're trying to do something of the opposite, that it will kind of be the self-inflicting circle. But as, as I see it, the world is a circle, and everything we do will have a adverse effect of whatever we're thinking about. Um, so what I think is that the, the circle itself is it's kind of a closed system, which the only way to open it is to break our own boundaries. But in my perspective, the boundaries are the religion. Uh, and 
with you uh, came on to say that the religions are some people's uh, feeling or belief that that's a, the the only truth there is, and without the only truth or without having the ability to believe in something else, I mean, you really cannot change anything in this world because it's people cannot truly be wise if they cannot. Uh, be open to new ideas, like for instance, Muslim being able to realize or acknowledge a religion such as Christianity or vice versa. Okay, I mean you've you've got a lot in there, some of which uh, I can't uh, I can't exactly follow. Uh, but let me sort of, if I can, I'll just jump into the first two points, sort of the first and the last point that you made have made, and sort of give you my thoughts on it, and then you can let me know what you think. Uh, the first thing is that it's impossible to be a Christian because this, uh, this sort of idea of Christianity that people have in their minds as a unified kind of belief simply does not exist, right? Uh, there is no such thing as a Christian because Christianity is a belief system that is full of so many contradictory commandments, right? Thou shalt not kill. Well, but God kills all the time in the Bible, and so does Jesus Christ advocates the murder of people. Um, you know, honor thy mother and thy father, and yet it says that if they then are not Christians, you can kill them, right? I mean, these, there's tons and tons of these, right? But the problem is that uh, Christianity, by its very nature, is a bunch of randomized uh, cherry-picking out of a highly contradictory and nonsensical uh, text that uh, people simply call themselves Christians because they're taught a whole bunch of fuzzy things without actually going through and reading the whole Bible, and then there's this whole cottage industry that sort of sprung up to try and reconcile contradictions within the Bible and so, and so on. So the problem is that uh, religion is never put forward as a coherent idea. Uh, and there's no way to be for or against an incoherent idea, right? It's a lot of sort of like saying, would you like to ride my unicorn? It's like, well, I don't know because, you know, it doesn't really, like what you're saying doesn't make any sense. And not you. I mean, talking about religious side of things. So I certainly think it's of great value to be open to new ideas, but the ideas have to have uh, what's called a null hypothesis or a testable proposition. So uh, if I say, uh, you know, do you like my unicorn, that's not a testable proposition because the unicorn doesn't exist. And that's not an idea in a sense that I would be open to because it just wouldn't make any sense. So I think it's very important to be open to new ideas, but it's, all, it's more important to have a strict methodology for determining whether new ideas are valid, are invalid, are true or false, are useful or not. Uh, yeah. and from, from that standpoint, I've never heard, uh, and it sort of would be innately contradictory to hear, a, a proposition that comes from a religious context that has any kind of logic or, or form or sense to it. Uh, it's just like a, it's a cultural bias. It's like so, so me, it's somebody coming up and saying, I like jazz. Is that true or false? It's like, well, A, it's not a falsifiable thing, really. Uh, and B, uh, who cares, right? So the problem with religion is that it's not a coherent philosophy. There's no null hypothesis. And uh, there's no, uh, everybody's completely isolated in their own religious beliefs because everybody's religious beliefs are about, around specific texts within highly contradictory and fragmented works. Yeah, but if you say it like that, I mean, uh, mathematics and chemistry only works because we, we came up with a unified idea of how to describe them. So how can we be, be certain that those are true as well? 
Well, and that's, but that, that question is, I don't think that, um, that chemistry and, and, and biology and the other sciences are valid because we have better ways of describing them. They're valid, and, and true always means true relative to what, right? Like if I say there's no unicorn, it's true relative to what? Well, it's true relative to empirical reality. And so when science claims to describe empirical reality, and then it comes up with predictions that says, you know, a ball is going to fall to the earth at 9.8 meters per second per second or something, and then it turns out that the ball does in fact fall that fast, uh, then science has accurately described the properties of matter. And so the truth or falsehood within science is always relative to the behavior of matter. Yeah. And there's nothing like that in the realm of religion. Yeah, but, it, but, it, but it, if you keep on looking back at science as it were and science as it may become, they said the, the, the faster than a horse could run would never be achieved while well, they, they made the steam machines. They said you would never be able to re, uh, escape from Earth's gravity. They built the moon rockets and, and so on. They All the time they push the boundaries of what's possible, even though it's, in a sense, shouldn't be possible because it was described in a, in a sense that if you look at the books or, sorry, my English isn't that good right now. Um, no, it's doing fine. Uh, so, so if you look at, at 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 things that should be true in 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 the way we we think about them now, because we can we have all this fancy math mathematics, chemistry and science, and maybe ten years in the future it would be obsolete because we came up with a other way to describe them that would make more sense. Sure, like you mean sort of like how Einstein's, Einstein's physics superseded Newton's physics and now there's the super string stuff. Yeah, exactly. For sure, for sure. But all of those advances are considered to be advances because they more accurately describe the behavior of matter, right? So they're not advances in the scientific method itself. They're advances of knowledge within the scientific method, right? So it's one thing to say there are mathematical formulas and algorithms that have not been invented yet, for sure. I mean, no question, right? But it's not illogical to say there will be no mathematics in which 2 plus 2 will equal 5. There will also be no geometry in which there will be a square circle. That's not a controversial decision because those are basically self-contradictory facts in and of themselves. A round circle and 2 plus 2 is 5, since, of course, 4 is just another way of saying 2 plus 2. So you're saying A does, equals the exact opposite of A, or A equals non-A. So there are advances within science, of course. That does not invalidate the scientific method, and none of those advances within science lead anywhere towards religion. Well, what if science came up with a way of mathematically describing God. I know this is far-fetched, but if, if they came up with a method of describing a religion, that would make... No, but that wouldn't, that, be, uh, that, that wouldn't be a matter for mathematics. That would be a matter for biology, right, and physics, yeah. because the idea of God is the idea of consciousness without physical form. 
of energy without matter, or actually of, of existence with neither energy nor matter that can be detected. It is life with neither birth nor death. It is consciousness without the acquisition of knowledge. Uh, it is all of the things that are basically biological concepts completely contradicted, right? So the reason that I say that science uh, will never, ever prove the existence of God and that every advance in science takes us away from the idea of God is that what you're saying is that every time mathematics is successful, it gets one step closer to proving that 2 plus 2 is 5. But of course, mathematics is only successful because it rejects the idea that 2 plus 2 is 5. So if we suddenly found that there was a, some consciousness floating out there, it would only be because it was measurable in some way. Right? Like we could point the spectra detector at God and we could see God on some sort of X-ray or Z-ray vision thing. Yeah. In which case it would be a matter of physics and biology. It would no longer be a matter of religion. Yeah, but you will not be able to see what you're not looking for. Oh, I think that human beings have spent an enormous amount of time and energy looking for God. And I think that that search will continue. But once they find God, then it will no longer be a religious entity, right? The religious entity is automatically described as that which cannot be perceived. The moment that God can be... Let's just imagine that, that in the next... Okay, let's go really far out if we're going to. Uh, let's imagine that in the next show that I do next week, I get God to phone in, right? So it's going to be... It's going to sound quite a bit like my wife, perhaps. Um, so maybe God asks. We'll get really heretical here. And... Uh, then uh, anybody can dial into my show on Sunday afternoons and ask any question of God. And because he's God, he can have all six billion people on the Skype cast that can answer every single one of their questions about everything. Then there would obviously be no need for religion then, right? You just, right? You don't need a librarian if you can go and look up the book yourself, right? So yeah. if people would talk to be able to talk directly to some omniscient consciousness, there would be no such thing as religion. There'd be no such thing as the Bible, right? Because you would just go and talk to God directly, so... Uh, again, all of these things, I think, uh, the more real that they get in the realm of tangible reality, the further we get away from any concept of religion at all. Okay. I think, thank you very much for, for, for your answer. Thank you very much. I, um, I just it. wanted to, to add a comment to what, what we talked about, and it's a small anecdote about um, Niels Bohr, a Danish physicist, and Einstein. And it was about the time they came up with the superstring theory, and Einstein dismissed the theory and said, God doesn't play dice. Back to the... Right. So, thank you very much. Right, right. Thank you very much. I appreciate that. Einstein was a depressingly quotable fellow, obviously a great genius when it came to physics, but... Uh, uh, people, and, and no disrespect to you, my friend, but uh, people do quote Einstein and so on, um, and, and his work in, in sort of philosophy, or he was a socialist and, and so on, and uh, I don't think that they would... I mean, a philosopher sort of listens to, to Einstein uh, with the same respect that Einstein would listen to a philosopher's pronouncements on physics, right? I mean, both philosophy and physics are a very complicated and deep and difficult subject that take uh, years or decades to, to even get close to being good at, and uh, Einstein spent his time and his life studying physics, more power to him. He was fantastic at it, of course, perhaps the best ever. But uh, his pronouncements on philosophy should be taken with no seriousness whatsoever, any more than my pronouncements on physics or other people like that should uh, have anything to do with, uh, with, with, uh, with being taken seriously. So I appreciate that, but um, a quote is never a proof, right? That's one of the central problems uh, that occurs. So... Um, this uh, is uh, Free Domain Radio for those who are just joining. Thank you very much for joining. This is a show uh, on philosophy uh, using particular uh, rationalistic and Socratic methodologies for approaching the pursuit of wisdom and truth and falsehood. 
And, uh, uh, oh, string theory has been pretty much discarded. You know, I think I was actually right about that. I was talking about, I think I was talking about G-string theory, though, which was a little bit different. It was more of a request uh, for Greg. But um, uh, this uh, uh, string theory I put forward as a, there's this, this element of science, and I'm going out completely on a limb here. So if there are physicists on board, feel free to, uh, uh, to uh, click on request mic and shoot me way down. But to me, there are sort of two kinds of, of uh, R&D that go on in the world, right? The one kind of R&D is um, really focused on producing goods that people want, right? I mean, this is stuff like uh, MP3 players, um, uh, Skype chats, microphones, um, podcast technologies, uh, uh, refrigerators, and all that kind of stuff, right? So there's a one aspect of R&D or of science that's really focused on producing what it is that people actually want, and I consider that to be a wonderfully positive and benevolent aspect of science. There's another load of whack-off science that is basically a bunch of government people looking to get funding. And that's where you get all of this, you know, 23 dimensions and, and all this sort of string theory stuff coming out. Uh, I view this as a kind of uh, uh, scholasticism. Scholasticism was a sort of species of, quote, philosophy in the Middle Ages, wherein uh, theologians would get into these unbelievably harsh and, and, and lengthy and eternal, it seemed like, debates about the question like, um, did Adam have a belly button? Right? This, this, believe it or not, this was a massive controversy in the Middle Ages in, in, religion, in religious circles, right? I mean, Christian circles. The reason, of course, why it was such a massive debate and, and bone of contention was because um, Adam is made in God's image. Right? Adam is made in God's image. Um, Adam can't have a belly button, because a belly button comes from the umbilical cord, as we know. Therefore, um, God can't have a belly button, because God was not born of anyone. So the question is then, does Adam have a belly button? Because if Adam has a belly button, then he's not in the image of God, because God doesn't have a belly button, for sure. Now, if Adam didn't have a belly button, but we have a belly button, then we're not in the image of God. Right? There, has to be, there has to be a belly button transition in there somewhere, which breaks the chain of causality between human beings and, and a deity. And this kind of stuff was, you know, the amount of energy that was put into this sort of stuff as well. Just enormous, right? And, of course, then people would get all screwed up about, well, there's Adam and there's Eve and then there's Cain and then there's Abel. And so where did the next generation come from? You've only got one woman, right? Is, is there incest involved? I mean, people would just go nuts with this kind of stuff, Right? Uh, because this is what happens when people don't have real jobs that are focused on the free market. And I view the same thing as going on within certain realms of academia, particularly in the sciences. So. Uh, let's see here. Can you just scroll up? Can you maximize that? I'm just going to read a little bit that someone put in here. Um, both authors, let's see here. NewYorker.com forward slash Critics forward slash at large forward slash articles forward slash zero six one zero zero two CRAT underbar at large. Now, both authors also detect a cult like aspect of the th string theory community with Witten as the guru. Perhaps it has been joked physicists might have an easier time getting funding from the Bush administration if they represented string theory as a faith based initiative. And interestingly enough, Freedom Main Radio is a faith based initiative because we dislike it so much. Smolin deplores what he considers to be the shoddy scientific standards that prevail in the string theory community where long-standing but unproven conjectures are assumed to be true because no sensible person, that is, no member of the tribe, doubts them. The most, the most hilarious recent symptom of string theory's lack of rigor is the so-called Bogdanov affair in which French twin brothers Igor and Grishka Bogdanov 
managed to publish egregiously nonsensical articles on string theory in five peer-reviewed physics journals. Was it a reverse Sokal hoax? This is in 1996. I use this in one of my novels. The physicist Alan Sokal fooled the editors of a postmodern journal, Social Text, into publishing an artful bit of drivel on the hermeneutics of quantum gravity. The Bogdanov brothers have indignantly denied it, but even the Harvard string theory group was said to be unsure, alternating between laughter at the obviousness of the fraud and hesitant concession that the authors might have been sincere. So uh, this, uh, this is the kind of postmodern nonsense. Uh, postmodernism is simply government-funded, just for those who, <laughs> who have some doubts about this, right? Um, postmodernism simply is, is uh, another word for government-funded, i.e. not market-focused, i.e. a species of violent fraud. And so uh, maybe there is something with two-string theory and quantum physics and time travel and all this kind of stuff, but it seems uh, that that and things like global warming are scientific methodologies highly corrupted by enormous amounts of money being hurled at scientists, right? Um, we would not expect an advertiser to be objective about his client's products, right? We would not say that um, uh, somebody who was uh, running an ad uh, for Coca-Cola products would be objectively evaluating Coca-Cola products in some sort of peer-reviewed overall sense. We would just say, well, they're there to pump uh, you know, the value of Coke products. I mean, that's what they're paid to do, and that's what they do. And the same thing, of course, we, we recognize this very clearly in the world of advertising. It's harder for people to see this in the realm of science because there's still a certain amount of vestigial respect left over for the white-coated brethren uh, of the horn-rimmed glasses. But uh, it is, of course, exactly the case. You would not expect a scientist who was being paid by the government for a particular, for, to pursue a particular theory to abandon that theory any more then you would expect a, an advertising executive representing a Coke uh, ad to go out on the media and say that Coke is like garbage that uh, rots your teeth and, and uh, damages your esophagus and uh, gives you gas, right? So uh, we, we sort of very, very clearly get in the realm of the free market that those who are being paid by a client and who have dedicated their whole lives and careers to pleasing that client are not going to speak out against that client, right? And this goes back to the McLean's article that I read at the beginning. We very clearly get all of this when it comes to someone like advertisers and so on. If I, uh, you know, if I pay Michael Jordan uh, $10 million to be the spokesman for free domain radio uh, and continue to pay him $10 million a year, and by the way, if he's not a spokesman for me, he doesn't get to be a spokesman for every, anyone, he's not allowed to hold a job at all, of course he's going to say nothing but good things about free domain radio. So it's even weirder when, when you get to understanding the motivations of advertisers and those who are beholden to the government. Because an advertiser, if he decides, you know what, I'm sick and tired of representing Philip Morris cigarettes as wonderful lung-clearing nicotine dispensers. I'm sick and tired of it. I feel gross. Uh, I feel like I'm, I'm pumping unhealthy stuff out into the world and making it look good. Then that guy can quit. He can say, you know what, I'm sick of this, and someone else will give him a job, right? If you're a government scientist and you've devoted 20 years of your life to string theory, that's all you've got. You've got nothing else. There's nothing else that you've got. And so uh, if you then uh, say, hey, you know what? This string theory is a load of nonsense. Um, I can't believe we got away for, it for this long. Well, that's it. You've got to go back and go back to school and learn some other kind of physics, right? So even where we recognize in the realm of advertising that advertising executives may get sick of a client and decide to trash that client in public, uh, and then get a job somewhere else. There's simply no possibility whatsoever that a scientist is, um, is going to do that or somebody in the media who's, of course, just about everyone in the media throughout the world and the sort of general public media 
uh, they're all, um, you know, they need information from the state. They're all regulated by the state. They all get subsidies from the state, uh, even if those subsidies are uh, nothing more complex than subsidized postage, which is certainly the case in Canada. Um, they're not going to speak out against the state. It's, it's absolutely unthinkable. Like, it's just never, ever going to happen. Uh, you know, you, you, uh, you dance with the one that brung you. you whoever calls the piper uh, pays the tune, right? Uh, so, sorry, whoever pays the piper calls the tune. And that is something which we fully recognize when it comes to um, parents and the intelligence and beauty of their newborn children. Uh, we recognize that when it comes to appetizers and so on. But there's still a kind of blind spot when it comes to people like public school teachers, uh, scientists, uh, people in the media. And, of course, they put great, uh, a great deal of effort into pretending to be objective when all you have to do with most things in life, uh, you just have to follow the money. That's all you've got to do is follow the money. And whoever's getting paid uh, by, you know, you look at the agenda of the person who's paying them, and that's all you need to do. It's not a whole lot more complicated than that. And uh, there's an enormous amount of... Uh, uh, of uh, gunk, sort of mental gunk that's out there in society, which uh, people try to uh, pretend that this money source doesn't exist. And again, this is back to the, the uh, article that I read at the beginning. Um, people are just shocked that people like to give money to their friends and get kickbacks, right? And we, we're not shocked, of course, that uh, I go and give my time to empl an employer and I get uh, paid a salary, right? So I go and give something, get something back. That's sort of well understood. We're, we understand that companies, when they put out a press release, are praising themselves. And we understand that executives uh, in an ad company are going to be pro their clients. And if they're not, uh, it's going to be quite unusual. And this is a common thing, right? This is, this is the very basis of the economics profession that... Um, that people respond to incentives, right? <laughs> it's not, you don't put on a white coat, uh, a lab coat, and suddenly become a non-human being who doesn't respond to incentives, right? You want to get paid like everyone else, and you know exactly which way the wind blows, right? This is why political correctness takes hold so strongly in academia, right? Everybody knows that uh, as soon as governments get into paying academia, there's no possibility that academia is going to be objective. It's simply, completely, and totally impossible. If the cigarette company is funding all of the studies for lung cancer, we know for sure that there is going to be um, a bias, right? So, Well, Steph, if that's true, should we question all research then as self-serving? Well, heavens no. Heavens no. That's the beauty of the free market, right? So uh, certainly there are certain kinds of research that could be self-serving, without a doubt, right? Um, but... The thing is, um, I guess, I mean, I would sort of like to have a world where I don't care about research. Like, why would I care? I would really love to have a world where I don't care about research. Like, for instance, do I care the market research that is done by Starbucks to open up a new Starbucks store? I could care less. I don't care. Um, I would really like to, um, to not care about anyone's research. I don't care about the market research that uh, General Mills is going to put into producing a new breakfast cereal. I don't care. I'd really like to not care at all. Uh, I'd really like to not care about polls. Like, why would I care in a free society? You don't care what anybody else thinks, right? The only reason why, why it's sort of scary that 70% or 80% of Americans believe in a Christian God is because they vote and <laughs> they get through the government to impose their will on you. I could care less what other people believe. Right? That's why, that why I want a stateless society is because I don't care what other people believe and I don't want to be at the mercy of other people's opinions. So... 
Uh, of course, a vast amount of stuff that's done in the world is done to manipulate public opinion so that the government can use its weapons <laughs> with less fear of repercussion. So uh, I would really like to not have to care about uh, any of that sort of stuff. But, uh, yeah, certainly in the realm of science, in the, in the realm of academia, uh, I would just I, – I wouldn't even say question it. I would just say that it's all complete nonsense, right? The stuff that comes out of academia in the realm of economics and social science and so on, it's, you know, it's either funded by the state – uh, or it's funded by the university, which is itself funded by the state, or it's subjected to state power, right? So uh, <laughs> no question. I, I wouldn't even look at that stuff fundamentally uh, just because, I, you know, you, you look at the source, right? I would no more go to, uh, to, uh, to try and figure out the health effects of Coca-Cola. I would not go to the Coca-Cola website, right? Because, of course, they're, they're paying for the website. They're paying for the research. You're not going to get objective information there. I wouldn't necessarily go to I hate Coca-Cola, it raped my dog.com or anything like that. Uh, if I really wanted to find a health effects, I'd go to somebody who was not uh, paid by either the pro or the anti-groups, and you'd sort of figure out, well, how did they get paid and so on. It's just a skepticism around follow the money. But, uh, I, you know, and so to find out about the government, I certainly would never go to academia. I mean, to find out what's going on in society, I would never go to people who are paid by the state. It would just be uh, irrational. I, would, I wouldn't even be doubtful about it. I wouldn't even bother. Let's see here. So then corporate research today, you're saying, is biased because of state influence and not because of self-serving desires. Well, I don't know. I mean, there's corporate research that goes into, will this breakfast cereal make money? Well, that's great, but who cares, right? I mean, that's not something that really affects us. I mean, if you like the breakfast cereal or whatever, right? There's market research that goes into, um, what do they call it, the Nielsen ratings, or at least they used to, where they'll go and rate a television show and find out how popular it is. Well, that's great, right? Why are they doing that? Because they want to sell, you know, I mean, television is about delivering you to advertisers, not about delivering shows to you, right? It's all about delivering eyeballs to the advertisers, and that's why they want to find out how many people. And I trust that research because they, they, the advertisers, like wherever you have a conflict of interest, you will get closer to the truth, as long as you have a common methodology, right? So, uh, of course, the, um, uh, the, um, the advertisers want to pretend that there are lower numbers of people being delivered to their ads because uh, they want to pay less. The, um, this is a DRO situation, right, for those who've been following any of this uh, anarchistic philosophy of how disputes get resolved in the absence of the government. If I want to go and advertise on Christina's um, uh, television show, then um, I want to say, well, you only have five watchers, so I'm going to pay you five bucks. She's going to say, well, I have five million watchers, so I want five million bucks. And we're going to have to find some third party that we both trust who is going to give us the accurate numbers. And we're both going to be watching to make sure that the numbers are not either too high or too low. Right? That's how the truth gets uh, gets found out, or at least a decent methodology to truth gets implemented. Right? That's the scientific community. Uh, that's the free market. Uh, that's uh, this is how you get to the truth. There have to be two people, uh, ideally, with opposing agendas and a third party that they both watch like hawks. That's the only way <laughs> that you can get to the truth. That's why the board is so valuable <laughs> to me. Right? And uh, that's how you get to the truth. There's simply no other way to do it. There's no other way. Everyone else is just biased, right? And, and even the people here are biased. But what you have in the idea of advertisers, and this is why both the advertisers and the networks have a third party that they both trust, is that now the third party has a bias as well, but the third party has a bias towards accuracy in that if either of the two parties that they're collecting information for 
ends up saying you're full of crap and your, your methodology is biased and you got bribed by the networks to decrease the numbers or to increase the numbers, then they're out of business, right? So you have to have somebody whose bias is in the truth. And that's why uh, when uh, General Mills does research on whether a breakfast cereal is going to make it, they are interested in the truth because they have to invest their own money to make this breakfast cereal, right? So you have to have somebody who's got a financial interest in the truth. And that's not public school, right? That's not academia. That's not the media. In fact, they have a financial incentive in not telling the truth and that if they do tell the truth, you know, they're, uh, they're going to get uh, rather badly stiffed by the state in one form or another, right? So. All right, so enough of my rants uh, and enough of me reading from the board. But uh, if you would like, there is a button on the Skype chat. This is Stefan Molyneux from Free Domain Radio. Thank you so much for joining. Uh, freedomainradio.com. There is a request mic, uh, suppose a request microphone, uh, which you can click on. And uh, it will, uh, let me just uh, make sure everyone's muted, because if you're not muted then you won't get to see that. Uh, I don't think you'll get to see it. If you have a question or an issue or a problem or a criticism or another way of approaching things, I would really appreciate uh, if you would click on Request Mic or you can type in the chat window. We do have one person who wishes to talk. Yes, please go ahead. Love to live info. Yeah, it's uh, DJ Wannis. Love to live info. How's it going? Yes. Are we hearing each other? Yeah. Let's hope so. Let's keep the peace. That's what it's all about, keeping the peace. And that's where this notion of and God comes in, because God is good in providing life. Keep it simple. And that's within us all. We have a creative need to create, and we get that ability from our minds. So, isn't in connection with the Almighty power that's within within our own thinking? Sorry, I'm going to have to interrupt you for two reasons. One is that you're cutting out quite a bit. The other is that this is an atheist show. So coming in with, uh, you know, and uh, there's no reason why you would know that, so no disrespect intended, but um, coming in with generic statements about the existence of God, uh, if you have sort of logical or rational arguments, uh, if you want to type them in the chat window, I'm certainly happy to hear them, but I can't follow because you kind of, you sound a little bit like you're sort of underwater, like you're bubbling sort of in and out. But I certainly did catch enough from what you were saying to understand that you were talking about, you know, God is peace and God is good and God is virtue and so on. But those are not philosophical statements that can be evaluated and certainly would not be evaluated positively in a, um, uh, in a, a group of atheists, right? So uh, I'm certainly happy to, uh, uh, to listen to arguments about the existence of God, but, uh, you know, sort of simple statements about equating God with positive things like peace and virtue and so on. Uh, not really a very philosophical approach, and you may uh, have more sort of lack or receptivity among uh, people who are already religious because it doesn't do much to the conversation here. But uh, certainly if you have uh, other arguments, uh, you can type them in the chat window. I'd be happy to, uh, to have a look at them. So if there's anybody else who has a question or a comment or an issue uh, to, to chat about, uh, we've had a nice, juicy, wide-ranging discussion today. Uh, is there anything that you wanted to bring on? Uh, so, yeah, just click on the uh, request uh, microphone, 
uh, there, and uh, I will see it show up here, and we'll be more than happy to demute you, to unmute you. So, if anybody has any questions, I don't have a huge amount of more topics that I want to get into before uh, the end of the show, because I have a couple, but I want to sort of save them for podcasts this week. But uh, so if you have questions, feel free to ask them now. Otherwise, I certainly am not going to. It won't be the end of the world if we end a little bit early today. We certainly had some shows recently that have gone on till, uh, <laughs> I guess, the wee hours for some people in the world, but certainly uh, two to three hours. So I'm just going to see. There's a couple of people who are here. Uh, I'm waiting. I'm waiting. All right. Uh, I don't know who that person is. All right, so if you would like to click on Request Mic, that would be great. If you have anything else, you can put it in the chat window. Uh, if nobody has anything else, no biggie, no problems. But, um, uh, oh, yes, oh, yes, the Jack Welsh conundrum. Uh, this is interesting, and I'll certainly put out uh, some, oh, uh, I'll certainly put out some thoughts or ideas. Um, the Jack Welsh conundrum, why should a man so screwed up personally be trustworthy as a businessman? Um, well, uh, that's a very, that's an, an an excellent and interesting question, and a very complex one, which of course would be very interesting to uh, to discuss at more length. Uh, let me just uh, unmute you, Mr. G, and uh, we will be able to. Um, uh, you can maybe pose a little bit more. I only know that he's had like three marriages and so on. I don't know much about uh, his um, uh, his life other than that. Uh, so, if you'd like to sort of give us a bit more uh, of a um, uh, of a, uh, a lowdown on the gentleman, that would be good. Can you uh, can you speak? I'm not sure if I've got you on yet. Hello. Hello. Yes, go ahead. Okay. Well, I actually don't know much about him either, but I was just um, thinking back to um, a podcast uh, 500 on that one, or I guess it would be 501. Uh, <laughs> I was going to say, I don't think I worked it into my song. <laughs> <laughs> Jack no, Welch, uh, GM. <laughs> GE, sorry, not GE. GE, not right. GM. He's the CEO of General Electric, or was for many years, considered to be one of the most successful CEOs in, in history, added like, I don't know, $10 billion to GE's market cap uh, over the course of his tenure, and I've listened to two of his audio books just on general business topics, but I don't know much about his personal life, so go ahead. Right. No, uh, and, and neither do I, but but uh, in... in uh the, the the talk you had on um, um, you know who's smarter than whom um, in 501. Um, yes. You uh, and, and I'm having I'm still trying to figure out exactly how to uh, phrase this question, but um, it, I guess it was it just seems to me that I'd be a little bit um, I mean as as successful as his business was, I'd, I personally I'd be a little um, skeptical of taking any kind of advice from someone uh, who you um, used in the podcast, anyways, as an example of uh, somebody who um, isn't exactly personally all there. Well, sure, but it, it, it right. would depend what you're looking for, right? I mean, uh, if Van 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 Gogh would be a great person to paint your portrait but you wouldn't necessarily want him to be your marital counselor, right? So, I mean, where people have particular skills, um, we, we do definitely want to go and talk to these people. The challenge arises when, and I, I, I sort of very basically get the idea that this has something to do with religion as well, right? We don't get the opportunity costs that are involved with the acquisition of a particular skill. 
So it's like, yeah, Jack Welsh, you know, made a lot of money, made GE a very profitable company, turned a company around, uh, did some great things, which meant that he was traveling, you know, nine months a year, which meant that, uh, and, and all the time that he was spending at his, uh, uh, at his job, uh, he, um, uh, he wasn't spending doing other things like learning philosophy or learning economics or learning how to not have a marriage crater on him or learning how to have his kids like him or something like that, right? So uh, we, can, we can respect, at least I can certainly respect some specialized skill that somebody has achieved. But generally, the better they are at that thing, the less you want to hear about anything else from them, right? Because uh, I had this thing at work the other day where uh, I used the term margin versus profit incorrectly, and uh, I later heard that the CFO was, you know, appalled, right? The, the chief financial officer was appalled that I'd used the term margin incorrectly. And, you know, to me, it's like, well, sure, you know, of course he's the CFO. So he spent all this time studying accounting and studying the business finance and so on. And that's great. So he knows all these terms and that's wonderful. And I used the term incorrectly in a, a white paper that I was writing. And it was like close, but not quite right. And of course, he's appalled because for him, it's perfectly obvious, right? But of course, what I've been doing is learning how to sell and learning how to program and learning how to manage and all these kinds of things. So would it be then be, if he used a technical term incorrectly, would I then think that he was, you know, well, that's appalling or that's really bad? Well, of course not, because he's learned technical, he's learned financial terms and I've learned technology. So it's just a, a matter of recognizing that whatever we're good at is everything else that we're that much worse at. And when someone's really good at something, like, I don't know, uh, um, when you are, uh, I don't know, like this Josh Groban fellow or some singer, right? If you're like just a fantastic singer or performer or whatever, Freddie Mercury or whoever, then the fact that you're really good at that one thing is going to suck you more into doing just that one thing, right? So Einstein then becomes very big in physics, right, in, in the land of physics because he's so good at it, right? That's what he's going to do. And that means that he's going to be proportionally, like where somebody has a real bulge inability, they have a proportional um, disbulge. <laughs> Wherever you see a mountain of ability, everything else is a canyon, right? Because you get drawn towards that, right? So um, what, what the CFO should have said to me was, Steph, all this time that you're spending doing podcasts, you're not spending learning about our business. That would have been a far more relevant criticism, right? Uh, and they certainly do know that I run podcasts on the side. So, right. um, so yeah, everything that I – and all the time that I spent doing this stuff has made me stupider in everything else, right? Because I could have been doing other stuff that, you know, who knows what I mean, would have made me calmer, uh, speak more slowly, take a breath. Who knows? Uh, so uh, th that's just something, you know, that, that's why I try not to give up. People are saying to me, like, can you tell me how to run my portfolio? And it's like, no, <laughs> for God's sake, don't listen to me, right? Because I spent my time on philosophy and economics and art and so on. Um, which means that then I don't get to learn all this other stuff. Now, maybe if I've been really interested in being a financial consultant or, you know, a stock advice guy, which would be a total fraud, but let's just say, then, yeah, I would have been able to say, do this with your 401k and do that, you know, like Harry Brown did all that kind of stuff, right? Uh, and so he missed out on uh, philosophy. Uh, similarly, uh, a friend of mine who's writing a book on uh, economics uh, is uh, very knowledgeable about certain aspects of economics. Does he know smack about what it's really like to be an entrepreneur, the kind of decisions? No, of course not, because he's spent his life in academia. Uh, so similarly, I couldn't write as good a book on theory, but I sure as heck could uh, outpace him when it comes to entrepreneurial economics because I've actually lived it, like certain aspects of it. So, you know, wherever there's a great bulge in ability, it means that I'll go to that person for that ability, 
but I'll never go, like I'll be much less likely to go to them for anything else at all. Right, but I, I just wonder if, uh, I, I wonder how much overall good you're doing in a situation where you're so incredibly lopsided in that way that um, for, for, for every inch of good you do in that one monumentally experienced area, you're doing three inches of bad somewhere else, right? Uh, well, um, I don't know that it's necessarily the case because, you know, if let's say you're, you're a surgeon and you're a surgeon like 12 hours a day, well, you're saving a lot of people's lives, you know, assuming you're not that beheading surgeon we were talking about earlier. You're saving a lot of people's lives and that's a good thing, right? Um, let's say that you're single, right? So you said, I'm going to be a surgeon, I'm going to operate 12 to 14 hours a day, and then I'm going to go home and I'm going to eat, I'm going to sleep, and then I go back to be doing a surgery. Well, it's not that you're doing harm in any other way. Uh, relative to, to all of that. Now, there is a weird kind of calculus that sort of pops into my mind about someone like Jack Welsh, right? So his own personal life is screwed up, two or three divorces, kids don't talk to him and that kind of stuff because, you know, why would they? He's just some big flashy guy on a business week who doesn't actually spend any time with you or read any bedtime stories. But uh, so, you know, his own family is, is screwed up. Now, if he hadn't, and I'm not saying he should, but if he hadn't gone to run GE, then maybe you know, 50,000 people would have gotten laid off. And what would that have done to their family life, right? Who knows, right? There would have been a great destruction of capital and jobs and careers and so on. So, you know, in a sense, it's like uh, uh, you, you break your own finger to save 500 people kind of thing, right? So uh, the, in a sort of weird utilitarian calculus, he's done more good by saving the company and destroying his own family than if he'd saved his own family and the company had gotten destroyed. I mean, I'm not saying that would ever be a reason for anyone to do something, but that's a way that it could be sort of calculated. Yeah, and isn't that sort of the, uh, doesn't that sort of contradict the whole notion of uh, personal ethics, though? Oh, totally. And, of course, I mean, this, would, this is where utilitarians start spontaneously touching their own nipples because it's just such a wonderful <laughs> idea for them that you can have some sort of calculation that then forces this guy to be a good CEO, right? But, of course, if you forced him, he wouldn't be a good CEO. So it never works that way. But uh, you certainly could say that, like, if I were him and I would be desperately clawing at a justification for my own life, right? There's a reason why after he quit... GE, he went on these endless speaking tours rather than try to rebuild his family because it was way too late to do that. And he, like everyone, as he gets close to the end of his life, he's kind of got to look back and say, okay, let's, let's sum this puppy up, shall we? And <laughs> let's see what I did and didn't do. And unfortunately, you know, the people, you know, the stock, the stockbrokers, sorry, the stockholders and the executive team and the people whose jobs you saved through your heroic travel and efforts, uh, they don't exactly come to your bedside when you're sick and make you soup. Right, so there's a sort of personal aspect to life that career success doesn't cut and cover, and I think that's when people get older, they have that kind of problem of looking back and saying, "Well, I sure spent a lot of time at the office, and that's good, I guess. You know, I did a lot of cool things, and I had, you know, a really great career." But I think for a lot of people, there's a big problem with all of that, in that that stuff fades, and of course, some money can't buy you love, right? So yeah, I had a lot of success, had a lot of money, was the big man on campus, but you know, my personal relationships. Um, we're a total disaster. And at the end of your life, you know, people are only going to want to speak to him because they want business advice, not because they care about him as a person. So I think it gets sort of sad. You know? 
Right. And it's a question about whether to follow this man's business advice because he's a good businessman and not to take advice from him on other matters. I mean, I think of Bill Clinton, who is running the country or who is running the United States, whose personal life and his moral philosophy or his ethics were, were just abhorrent. And he's telling the world how to live. And so I'm just wondering if that's the comparison that's being made here. But you tell me how to live. <laughs> In, in, in part Sorry, we're just going to go offline for a moment here and chat about this. We'll be right back. No kidding. Go ahead. <laughs> no, in in part that's that's the uh, that's part of the criticism. I mean, uh, it, it, but but it, there's there's a, another layer to it too, and that uh, I I wonder if you know the 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 need to be so spectacularly. Um, Successful in one particular thing is really more indicative of um, uh, of a life out of balance. Of uh, yes. you know that that uh, that a uh, I guess a more well-rounded approach to knowledge and wisdom to me seems more uh, seems seems like it's capable more capable of doing more good. Even if only locally, than than to be uh, something like an Einstein, where you're you know the smartest physicist on the planet, but you're you know dating your cousin, that kind of thing. Oh yeah, no, his life was a complete mess, and uh, one of his kids turned out to be insane, and his wife killed herself. It was just awful. I mean, just an absolutely wretched life that the man lived at a personal level. His last marriage, he wouldn't even talk to his wife. She had to slide his dinner under his study. Right, um, and my goal of getting Christina to work with more flat food hasn't paid out at all. So, because uh, she's all about these little profiteroles and Eiffel towers of. Anyway, we don't have to get into all of that. But um, uh, no, it's it's a total mess, right? And there's certainly there's a a common kind of wisdom out there in the world that everybody pays lip service to and nobody or almost nobody sort of acts on, which is that uh, success uh, is not the same as happiness or professional success in particular, right? There's that old song, uh, it's on a Sinead O'Connor album where she does old standards, uh, success has made a failure of her home. And that, of course, is quite the case as well. You see the, in, the, uh, in the realm of arts, right, every actress who gets an Oscar gets a divorce, at, you know, within a, a couple of months, right? And so this kind of success, uh, it's not, you know, if, if success and beauty and fame and money uh, brought you happiness, then, you know, Marilyn Monroe would be, you know, alive and, and happy. I mean, maybe not now. She'd be pretty old. But Elizabeth Taylor wouldn't have gone through eight marriages. You know, Richard Burton wouldn't have drunk himself to death. Freddie Mercury wouldn't have screwed around until he got AIDS and died like a dog, right? I mean, this stuff doesn't make you uh, happy. Uh, it's a thrill and it's addictive. And the problem with somebody, I think, like Jack Welsh, and, you know, this is psychologizing at a distance, but I think it's fairly true, that what happens is work is is relatively uncomplicated, like relative to a marriage and raising children. Work is, it's got real external measurables. You get lots of plaudits. People applaud you when you give speeches or they get mad at you. And there's an objective, non-negotiable kind of thing, right? So in my job, like I have to come up with a lead generation program, which I've started on, it's going to produce a certain amount of leads or it's a failure, right? There's no, there's no big argument about it, right? Either we make money or we don't. And uh, that's sort of how things work in business. So I'm not saying that business is easy, 
but relative to personal relationships, business is relatively uncomplicated. You put stuff forward, and that, that stuff can be very complicated and creative, but it either works or it doesn't, right, assuming that you're not in some sort of government industry, right? And so from that standpoint, you know, you put it forward, it works, and you tweak it and this and that, and you get lots of positive feedback and so on, but how to raise children is quite a lot more complicated, right? And how to have a happy marriage is quite a lot more complicated. At least that's certainly been uh, my, uh, my experience. And so what happens is somebody who's got a talent for business, they are drawn towards the business arena. And this is true of people who have talent in music or talent in anything, right? They're drawn towards the arena where they get lots of positive feedback, they get lots of praise, they get lots of money, they get lots of people who want to call them and, and spend time with them and they feel very popular and so on. And so they, they sort of spend more time doing that and less time at home with their family, right? So then what happens is their business career goes really well and they get more money and they get more praise and they get more positive feedback while at the same time their marriage and their relationship with their children gets worse. And so then you get to this tipping point where you don't want to invest in, like you want to follow what makes you feel good, right, in this sort of drug-like way. And so you go and spend more time on the road. You travel more where people want to see you, where they're happy to see you. They'll take you out for dinner. They think you're the best guy ever and so on. And you don't want to come home to your sullen and disappointed wife and children. And so it becomes a real vicious circle. And I would not be at all surprised if that's what happened to, to Mr. Welch, right? So much success and positive feedback that people, if you're useful to someone in business, they will praise you. They will give you money. They will give you anything to, to keep you on and to – but. It's, I mean, I'm not going to sort of say it's exploitation because he's a big boy and so on, but you have to watch that stuff in business, and you, it's so easy to, to, get, to get sucked into that. I've known people who, like, I'm, I'm sort of a 9-to-5 guy. I did my 70 hours a week in my 20s and early 30s. Like, I'm sort of a 9-to-5 guy. I want to come home and be with my wife. There are people I've known in business, they have three children under the age of five. I've known a couple of people like this. And they're in when I get in at 8.30 in the morning or whatever. They're there. If I get in even earlier, they're there. And they're there even if I'm working late and I leave at 6 or 7. They're still there. And part of me is like, dude, you've got children at home. Go home. Spend time with your family. You know, I read an article many years ago which sort of had an impact on me. As this woman said, she was cleaning out her desk at the end of her career, right? So she was 65. She was retiring. She'd been an executive for many years. And... She's going through all her filing cabinets, right? And she, she pulls out this, this uh, one report, and she's like, oh, man, I remember this. This is the report that I ended up missing my daughter's 13th birthday for. And she looked at the report, and it's like, this means nothing. I was just, I'm shredding it. I'm throwing it out. This was nothing. It seemed like life and death at the time. Now, it's nothing. And she's going through all of these reports. Oh, this panic. This is when I couldn't go on vacation with my husband. He planned it for me, and I couldn't go because it seemed so important. You know, this client has gone. Uh, they've left. This company went out of business that I tried to save. They're gone. Everyone's relocated. And she's just throwing this stuff into the shred of this stuff that's 10, 20 years old that screwed up her whole life at the time, which she thought was so important. And that really stuck with me, you know, just as a fundamentally not good way to prioritize your life, right? That you, yeah, you've got to earn a living. You've got to make money, and you've got to be good at your job. Otherwise, it's a kind of fraud. But, you know, you've got to keep that life in balance. You just have to keep that life in balance, or I think that your life turns into quite a lot of regret. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And, and that's kind of what I'm saying, is that if, you know, if you're, um, uh, uh, you know, so super specialized 
the, you know, the, that this one thing is all you can do, then, uh, then you think you're doing good on the outside, out there somewhere, whereas, whereas in here, in your own house, you know, things are collapsing. Right? You're doing all kinds of bad, and if everybody's doing that, then there really is no good being done because it it right. it, it gets canceled out because whatever it is out there you think you're doing is is illusory because where you should be doing good is at home. Right. Well, I certainly agree with that. I certainly agree with that. I mean. Philosophy is lived in the personal sphere primarily, and, and through that, the larger sort of social organization grows. Uh, and I think that the people who've made those kinds of mistakes, uh, and I know uh, one person who's going through this right now. I mean, he was an entrepreneur when his kids were very young, and he spent two or three weeks a month on the road for a couple of years when they were very young. And now they're going into their teenage years, and uh, they're messed up. You know, They're messed up, right? They're two daughters. They miss... They missed bonding with their dad in many ways, right? I mean, he wasn't the worst dad in the world, but they they missed it, right? And now uh, you can't go back and reparent, right? You cannot go back and reparent. There's this other guy. I'll just talk about one other sort of situation just very briefly that struck me. Um, this guy I knew at work, uh, he's, uh, uh, he's saying that, uh, hey, you know, uh, um, I, I moved a cup on his desk. And he said, uh, don't, don't, that's my daughter's cup, right? And I said, oh, wh- why? <laughs> right? And he said, well... I kind of snapped at her this morning because I told her not to spill her juice, and I was running late to get to work. I had a meeting, and my wife had already left. She works too, and so I snapped at her because I had to, you know, and then she was, I had to put her in the car and drive her to daycare, and she was trembling, and I had to run, and this and that, and, right? So she spilled the juice, and I got mad at her, and then this sort of spilled over and so on, right? And, and he's like, oh, you know, and then like last night I come home, and I'm making their dinner, and then the phone rings, and it's like, oh, your daughter has a piano lesson. Where is she? And oh, i got to rush and get these kids into the car and get out of the piano lesson, whereas last week it's because I forgot she had brownies and this and that and the other, right? And uh, I just said, uh, I said, dude, so not only have you got two parents working and you got two kids who are young, but they're, you got them in activities too. Like, what are you thinking? <laughs> you know, like with all due respect. What is so important that you're not going to have one of you stay home with your children? Why, why, why have the children? It's something I've never fundamentally understand. Yeah, why yeah. have the children and then hand them off to other people? Uh, right? So as I write in The God of Atheists, yeah, it takes a village to raise your children now because the real parents are so rarely to be found. Right? Because I mean, they're off what? They're off getting uh, positive feedback from other people who want to use their skills and resources. Right? The children aren't going to exploit you. They just want to spend time with you, right? Whereas your employer is going to want you to come in and go to work, right? So are you going to live with your inner standard of integrity, or are you just going to please those people around you? That's uh, in, in almost, that's what uh, heart is, right? Just pleases people around him rather than living with an inner standard of integrity, as does Tom for most of the novel. But you have to have your own inner standards of integrity because if you just respond to the needs of the people around you, then the most manipulative and destructive people will always get their way with you. And the people who are the nicest and the kindest and the most, uh, the least imp- impose, imp- uh, they impose upon you the least, those people get screwed. And those are almost always the children. Yeah, pe- people don't want to have to make a choice. They, they want both. They want, they want what everybody else has and they want what they want too. They don't, they don't think they should have to choose between you know the the obligation that they've committed to with kids 
and the obligation they've committed to with their own uh, professional aspirations and whatnot. Right, right, right. And of course, uh, if their if their children choose this later, like and this is the this is the problem, right? Uh, one of the things that I sort of figured out in the defu process was that. I didn't owe anything more. Like what I owed my parents was justice, right? And, and what I owed my parents was what they had provided to me, right? I mean, I do believe in an intergenerational debt, right? And if your parents are good to you and they, they cared and loved and, and supported and raised and did right, they're not perfect, but, you know, like nobody's perfect. But if your parents did a good job by you, then, yeah, I think when they get old and decrepit, you should do the right thing by them. And that seems to be just, right? I mean, that's, I mean it's, that seems to sort of a fair thing to do, but... One of the things that I kind of got was that, uh, uh, you know, I, I owe my parents what I received from them, right? And uh, so this meant that I get to make up for not having had the best of childhoods by at least not having to take on a whole lot of obligations now that I'm older, right? Because, you know, as you get into your 40s, for a lot of people, especially if their parents had them a little bit later, I mean, there's the problems of aging parents coming into the world, right? And that, oh, going out of the world, I guess, slowly, right? So... <laughs> that's a big problem for a lot of people. And so for me, it's like, well, okay, I had a crappy childhood because my parents were like crazy, mean, bad people. And then if I also had to wipe their asses when they got older too, it'd be like, well, <laughs> what the hell does this mean, right? Why am I taking on a standard that's so completely non-reciprocal, right? I mean, that, that would be not just, not, not good in a fundamental way. And, of course, uh, people get uh, appalled, right? They say, uh, well, you're not taking care of your mother. She's like, you know, whatever. And uh, they're appalled, right? And it's like, why? So you say that not taking care of someone who's dependent on you is a bad thing. Well, she never did that to me. So uh, the problem is this, the hypocrisy, right? So you can go and do your career stuff. Uh, this is the Cats of the Cradle song, right? You can right. go and do your career stuff. And then most parents, when they're old and they need their children... Then, if the children say, I'm sorry, I'm too busy, right? i got to travel. I can't come and look at the nursing home with you or come and visit you or whatever, right? Then they're just appalled, right? And, and you reap what you sow from that standpoint. And it's the hypocrisy, I guess, that bothers me the most. Right. And, and, and to bring this back to the Jack Welsh example, that's one of the reasons why I don't think I would take advice from a guy like that because <laughs> we're, because the advice he's going to give you is, uh, you know, Ignore your family, work 80 hours a week, and go on lectures when you're 60 years old. Right, right, right. No, and I think that's kind of sad. I really do. I mean, I have a great respect for what the guy did from a business standpoint. But uh, I, you know, and I, I used to have a lot more respect when I thought that economics was about maximizing returns on investment and about growing the economy the fastest. And now that I'm older and I understand that that's not at all what economics, what economics is about, right, that economics is about uh, allocation of resources and over allocating resources into your career and under allocating resources. It might grow the economy quicker, but that's not the point, right? The point is not to just make as much money as humanly possible. Otherwise, we'd be out there simultaneously selling a kidney and giving blood and working on our Blackberry, right? <laughs> but the point is to live a life of wisdom and balance and to be responsible within your career and to be responsible within your intimate relationships. And I think that that's generally impossible if we have historical obligations with our family that are unjust, right? So the one thing that makes up for um, having a bad childhood is not having obligations when you get older, right? That, that, that is the one thing that makes it not a net loss, if that makes any sense. Yeah, yeah, it makes perfect sense. 
All right. So now that the uh, the two fatherless people have solved all the problems of family, uh, perhaps we can um, uh, talk a little bit uh, more. If anybody else has any other sort of questions or or issues. Uh, sorry, the other thing, too, is that, uh, as we all know, right, and I mentioned this way back in a podcast on, on feminism, that, you know, the great tragedy, of course, is that um, in order to uh, maintain their lifestyles, you now have to have two people working where formerly, like in the 50s, a guy could buy a house and a car and support a wife and two or three kids uh, on a middle-class salary, right? I mean, even a factory guy could do that. Maybe not a very nice house, but it used to be the case that a single earner, male or female, but usually male, could keep a family running, no problem, off a decent income, had job security and so on. Uh, now, uh, with the price of real estate and the amount of taxation and so on, uh, you need two people, right? And this is, this is one of the reasons why the birth rate has just gone down so much, right? And there's so much taxes, high taxes always diminish birth rate. There's no question. The children are too expensive. And they're too stressful, right? So where people might have had th three kids in the past, now they have one kid and they barely managed to survive having two with all the stress that goes on with two parents working. The last thing they'd ever want is to have more, right? So at the very best, people are replenishing. And this is why, you know, a third of people go through life now without having kids, right? I mean, it's nothing wrong with it if it's your choice, but uh, these state policies do end up having significant effects on some basic fundamental things like the joys of family and so on. So, um, so this is where, you know, these sort of government policies both diminish the size of families and raise children with very high time preferences, which we can talk about perhaps another time. All right. So uh, if we have any sort of other questions or comments, if you'd like to click on give me the mic, man, I'll be happy to uh, take any sort of final questions or comments. Uh, thank you for a very, very interesting uh, and exciting show. Uh, I appreciate the feedback, and thanks, of course, to, to Greg and the others uh, who have commented and given some great food for thought. If you have any other questions, I'll just uh, give a last look over the board uh, and uh, see if anybody, I'll just give it a second for Skype to pop up if anybody else had any sort of questions or comments. Christina's clicking on it, but I'm going to ignore it. Um. <laughs> so, uh, all right. Well, listen, thank you so much, everyone, for listening. I appreciate it. We'll be just slightly, uh, uh, slightly uh, ending ahead of schedule here, which I'm sure won't be the end of the world for people. Thank you so much for listening. I look forward to uh, chatting with people on the boards, continuing with that www.freedomainradio.com. Thank you so much.